This is a reading from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's really great to be here with you this morning in worship. Uh, Let's take just a moment and open in prayer uh, as we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown to us through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we ask uh, that through your spirit you would minister to us now. Uh, we need you, Lord. We um, are, are desperate for you to open your word to us and show us more of yourself. Show us who you are. Show us who we are as a result of your work on our behalf. But be with us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been, um, we've been looking at a series this fall that deals with aspects of the gospel that we really hold important. And we've been asking this question. We've been saying, you know, that there are aspects about the gospel and our faith that are much like a detonator on a bomb. You know, just as a bomb needs a detonator to explode in power into the world, so our faith needs the detonator of the gospel and these aspects that we're looking at of the gospel to be explosively powerful and uh, show, show itself to be true and, and bear witness to God and build one another up and, and show witness to his kingdom as a result. And so we've been looking at these, and uh, in your bulletin it's written, the title of the sermon is written, The Gospel and Justice. Actually, in preparing, it started to really shift towards mercy. And, and so I realized we don't have time to do both. Justice is an important aspect of the gospel, so we're going to leave that on pause for a second. There's some very natural correlations that you'll see. But what we're going to look today primarily is mercy, showing mercy. So what I want to do is begin by telling you a couple of stories that I found. 
to get you thinking about what mercy is and who is it that we're to show mercy to and what role does it have in our faith as Christians? What, what role does mercy have with our faith in the gospel? What is that? And so let's listen to this. Sophia is a black single mother with two children living on $187 per month in addition to her food stamps. She can only afford to live in federally funded housing called the Projects in South Philly. She's lucky. The average housing project in the U.S. has a five-year waiting list. Drug-related violence is common in the projects. When her son's friends stole her food stamps, she had to get help from the local church. When her eight-year-old daughter wanted to invite friends to celebrate her birthday, Sophia had to borrow money from her friend to buy a cake mix. She spends hours each month walking in and out of businesses looking for a job. No jobs are available because Sophia cannot read well enough nor add in her head fast enough. Or consider Angela. Angela is a homeless woman. One idealistic seminarian once tried to reach out to Angela, and in doing so, he was surprised by what he discovered. And his poignant description of their encounter is this. At once, a once beautiful woman, Angela, is withering away in front of the library in our urban campus. She wears many layers of clothes. They are plastered on her brittle body like clashing layers of peeling paint. She doesn't have socks on, but it's cold and the weather is growing hostile. I offered her food once, but she rudely rejected it. She turns away abruptly when I try to talk to her. Stung with bitterness, I recoil. But then I gradually begin to understand how prejudiced we are with expectations of the poor. My arrogant anticipation of gratitude kills the goodness of the deed. She's hungry, exposed, and sick. Yet I resist reaching out because she might not welcome me. Which one of us is truly sick? Angela, you're a mirror thrust before us, but can we bear the sight? What we're going to look at today is this, that as Christians, we are to show mercy to anyone, including those like Sophia and Angela, anyone who we find in our path. We are to show mercy to anyone that we find in our path. And so we're going to look at that in three ways. Why should we give mercy like this? We're going to look at the necessity of showing mercy, We're going to look at the scope of showing mercy. We're going to look at the motive for showing mercy. The necessity, the scope, and the motive. So let's begin with this, the necessity for showing mercy. Verse 25, teacher, what shall I do inherit eternal life? And in 37, Jesus winds up the entire parable and story by saying, go and do likewise. In other words, go show mercy like this. Now, what I want to do for just a time is intentionally make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's good. It's good for the soul. So feel uncomfortable for a little while. We won't stay there. Um, But the Lord wants to teach us something through this parable. And I think that discomfort is necessary if we're going to grapple with what he wants us to see. It's important to remember what question is answering, Jesus is answering in his parable. What question is Jesus answering in his parable? We can't let that go by. And the question is this, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's very interesting. It's very interesting. You're starting to feel a little uncomfortable? Very interesting. Jesus answers that question by pointing the Bible expert to the example of the Samaritan who cared for the needs of the man on the road physically and financially. And Jesus answered the same question 
that was asked by the rich young ruler in Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And Jesus finished his answer there by saying, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Or consider what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus said that on the last day when he comes to judge, he's going to judge people on the basis of their ministry to the hungry and the naked and the homeless and the sick and the imprisoned. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel some discomfort? Now we know, let me ease that a little bit, we know that Jesus teaches that eternal life only comes through belief in him. Jesus said about himself, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way that we come to eternal life. We come through him. He's the way. So we can't mean that the Bible expert and the rich young ruler or, or that we can only inherit eternal life through what we do and not what Jesus has done. There's too many other places in the Bible that teach that it's through Jesus and what he's done that we inherit eternal life. So what is he pressing us on? If he doesn't mean that, why is he pressing us there? Why is he connecting it with the fact of our life lasting through his work? Why is he making it so important? And he means to show us here that mercy is necessary to our very being as Christians. It's necessary. Showing mercy is central to the very definition of being saved by the Lord in his work in the gospel. For example, consider what James had to write about it in the second chapter of his letter. He writes this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight that Jesus is trying to, to put on you through what he teaches here? Well, you might say, I can agree that showing mercy is necessary, but only to the deserving poor. Only to the deserving poor. And let me challenge you from what you'll read in your home study portion this week before you come to your home meeting. There you'll find this. It is true that we must be sure that our show of mercy must be done in a way that helps and does not hurt. We read uh, a couple of summer goes, we did a, the diaconate did a study, a book study of that, that it's possible to try to help, but you can do so in a way that it hurts. And so when we help, we have to be sure that we're empowering with our help, that we're helping with our help rather than hurting with it. However, we must be very careful about using the word deserving when it comes to mercy. Were we ever deserving of God's mercy? If someone is completely deserving, is our aid, our show of mercy then, really mercy? Years ago, Jonathan Edwards wrote a tract to answer the objections of people to the duty of Christian charity. And one objection was, well, why should I help a person who brought himself to this poverty through his own sin? And Edwards responded this way. Bear with the old English. (laughs) If they are come into poverty by a vicious idleness and prodigality, which means lazy, laziness and self-indulgence. 
Yet we are not thereby excused from all obligation to relieve them, unless they continue in those vices. If we do otherwise, we shall act in a manner very contrary to the rule of loving one another as Christ loved us. Now Christ has loved us, pitied us, and greatly laid out himself to relieve us from that want and misery which would brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness. We foolishly and perversely threw away those riches with which we were provided, upon which we might have lived and been happy to all eternity. Clearly, Christians who understand grace will not be quick to give up on an undeserving, needy person. Christ's mercy was not based on worthiness. It was given to make us worthy. So also our mercy must not only be given to those who... Our mercy must not just be given to those who reach some standard of worthiness. Showing mercy is basic and necessary to your faith if you call yourself a Christian. Illustration. Rodney Stark is a historian and a sociologist, and he studied the reasons why Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire in the early days. And the Greco-Roman world was struck by several huge plagues or epidemics, and Stark traces how Christians reaction to the plagues differed dramatically from, from that of those who maintained faith in the traditional polytheistic paganism. And he shows some quotes from the Roman Emperor Julian around 360 AD and the Dionysus Bishop of Alexandria around 260 AD. Emperor Julian says this, wrote this, the impious Galileans, in other words Christians, support not only their poor but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Or during the great epidemic, Dionysus writes this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their every knee and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death of themselves, their death to themselves and died in their stead. The pagans believed, behaved in a very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. It's necessary for your faith to show mercy. So not only is it necessary, but it's also, there's a tremendous scope to the mercy that we're to show. Uh, verses 34 and 35 read this way. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he said unto him, sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when he comes back. The scope and dimension of showing mercy is costly, and it encompasses everyone. First, it's costly. The Samaritan met a variety of needs in the beaten man. Did you see that? Look at verse 34. There's several things that you can see. The first service that he rendered was his very physical presence. He went to him. He went to him. When you're suffering, you know that it is a comfort to have somebody come alongside of you and even just sit with you and be with you and share with you in the midst of what you're going through. Now, some of you haven't suffered like that. And so that you don't know that how important that is. But those of you who suffered know how important it is to have somebody reach out and be there and be an advocate. Much like Jesus is our advocate who stands before the Father right now. First John, 1, 1 John 2 verse 1 tells us that. It's Jesus' priestly work, interceding in the midst of what is. And he calls every one of us to be priests in the same way. 
So the, the Samaritan went to him. He was physically present with him. But also look at the, uh, the Samaritan. He supplies all sorts of other aid. Uh, he provides triage and immediate medical treatment. Right? It says he, in verse 34 that he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. I was reading about that in uh, ancient customs, in a, in a dictionary of ancient customs, and that was a, a common medical practice at that time. And sometimes you would make a mixture of the two and have it, and it was thought to be soothing to the wound, and the alcohol of the wine was thought to be a disinfectant. So there's triage and medical care. There's transportation to a place of shelter. Verse 34 says he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. He took time for this. Don't forget this man is journeying. He has some place to be. He has something to do. He has people who are waiting for him. And he was willing to stop. And he's willing to do all of this. And he gave him medical care in the inn overnight. 34 says he took care of him. So he continued to dress him, his wounds, and make sure that he had everything that he needed. And finally, he gave a gift, a financial gift, to the pay for the man's rent until he recovered fully or until the Samaritan was able to return from his own journey. Now, knowing the state of the medical care, remember what it says, the man was half dead. The transportation at the time, this must have been really generous, really generous of the Samaritan. Verse 35 says, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The scope of the Samaritan's mercy, the scope of our mercy, Jesus says, is tremendously broad. There's physical need. There's financial need. There are emotional needs. And all of those things were met in this victim. And so this prompts us to define mercy in this way. Mercy, showing mercy together as Jesus would have us show it, is meeting needs with deeds. Another way to say it would be showing mercy is helping those who are near, anyone who is near, and anyone who is in need. It's profound. It's expansive in its scope. It's costly but it also encompasses everyone. Remember that the law expert did not deny the requirement to take care of those in need. He didn't do that. When they were having their theological back and forth, and he's trying to set Jesus up, he didn't deny the, the, the need, the responsibility to care for those in need. Virtually no one does. When you see need, virtually no one will say, we can't help that. But the, the, the expert, the religious expert, asks, who is my neighbor? Now, this is augmented in Philly. This is augmented. Why? It's augmented because in Philly, we hate to receive kindness from others. There are lots of things that go along with that. Often, kindness is mistaken for weakness. And so you don't want to show weakness. But we don't like to receive kindness. How do I know? How do you know? Stop sometime and wave somebody on at an intersection I've tried this multiple times since the first time I shared with you that I did that. Do you remember the first reaction of the very first person I came across? They were so angry that I was trying to let them go first. They were like, you go, you know. They didn't want to be indebted. And I've seen that again and again. 
Or um, in our neighborhood, we were new last year around Christmas. And so my wife baked some of her family recipes, uh, her favorite uh, banana bread from her family recipes, sort of a long generation of recipes, and uh, went around hanging it on doors of neighbors with a little card, family card from us, with pictures of us so that people would know who we are. Do you know, like the next morning we had doors on our ba- uh, bags on our door with cakes this big in them and like there's no you know like we don't want to receive kindness that we can't pay back so we're having we'll have trouble with that here but the scope here pushes against that and it it counsels us to show mercy to absolutely everyone anyone who's near and anyone who's in need you can imagine people in Philly, in our culture, in the Northeast, saying things like, oh, come on now, Lord, let's be reasonable. We know where to help out the unfortunate, but let's, how far do we have to go? Or you don't mean we should pour ourselves out for just anyone. Doesn't charity begin right here among one another? Or you don't mean that every Christian must get deeply involved with hurting and needy people. And I'm not very good at that kind of work. It's not my gift. Right? And I have a busy schedule and I'm extremely active in my church. And isn't this sort of thing the government's job anyway? And I barely have enough money for myself. And aren't many of the poor simply irresponsible? You've heard them all. You've given them all. And if you're like me, one of the real problems is you do not build enough margin into your life that the poor in your life who you connect with can glean. That's what the gleaning laws were all about in the Old Testament. It was so that the poor among you might have something to eat. That we leave enough margin. We're not to take everything for ourselves. All of our time, all of our resources, all of our work, all of our efforts, and spend them on ourselves. I am terrible at this. And I bet you struggle there too. What happens when somebody asks you for help? Do you have that kind of margin in your life to be able to act like the Samaritan acted? Is it for anyone that you would act that way, even your enemy? When Jesus shows us the indifference of the priest and the Levite, he takes away anything that would hide these false limits that we as religious people put on the command to love your neighbor. We put a distance between ourselves and what Jesus is saying here. In the Samaritan himself, Jesus shows us that the neighbor to whom we must render aid is anyone at all in need, even an enemy, anyone who's near and in need. Any person reading this parable begins to feel trapped. Do you feel trapped? There's a tremendous scope to showing mercy. It's costly. It's meant for anyone who's near and in need. Look, isolating from yourself is not the solution either. Isolating yourself from this need is not the solution. And this is a common solution. Um, it deadens our senses to, to things like this. It deadens our senses so that we can't do what Jesus is asking us to do. In April 2013, there was an edition of the Atlantic Monthly. Ken Stern wrote an article entitled, Why the Rich Don't Give the Charity. And the subtitle is, The Wealthiest Americans Donate 1.3% of Their Income, The Poorest 3.2%. What's up with that? 
And Stern cites Paul Piff, a psychologist at UC Berkeley, and he writes this. In a series of controlled experiments, lower-income people and people who identified themselves as being on a relatively low social rung were consistently more generous with limited goods than upper-class participants were. Notably, though, when both groups were exposed to a sympathy-eliciting video on child poverty, the compassion of the wealthier group began to rise, and the group's willingness to help others became almost identical. If Piff's research suggests that exposure to needs drives generous behavior, could it be that isolation of wealthy Americans from those in need is a cause of their relative stinginess? Wealthy people who live in homogeneously affluent areas Areas where more than 40% of households earn at least 200000 a year were less generous than comparably wealthy people who lived in more socioeconomically diverse surroundings. Socioeconomically diverse surroundings. It seems that insulation from people in need may dampen the charitable impulse. Did you know that we've had members of our ministry team serving food to the homeless who have talked to police officers, who have stated directly that the policy for North Philadelphia neighborhoods is containment. So that if you have a son or a daughter who's shot in those neighborhoods and you call the police, you will not go there. You will not get their aid. Isolation will prevent us from seeing the need. It deadens our sensitivity to the need. It deadens our ability to follow through, even with what we have at Jesus' command here. The scope of mercy that is necessary for Christians to show is profound. And anyone who is near and in need. And Jesus will not let us isolate ourselves from the needs of others. So, we have the necessity of mercy. We have the scope of showing mercy. But finally, the motive for showing mercy. Verse 33. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. That's what motivates Uh, or should motivate us to show the mercy that Jesus is talking about here. Israel had God's law. Israel had God's law, which clearly demanded mercy to one's neighbor. But Jesus is showing that the way that the experts in the law, the way the religious leaders were interpreting the book, was frustrating the very purpose of God. It was frustrating the law's very purpose. It's not simply enough to know one's duty, the priest and the, and the Levite had all the biblical knowledge that you could have. They had ethical principles that you could use to run your life by and do what was right. They had ethnic affinity with the man on the road. It was not enough. And what's striking is the Samaritan had none of those things. Not one of those things, but he had compassion. And it was enough, Jesus says. It was enough. What will really make the church, what will really make Liberty Fairmount merciful? It will not be enough to manipulate us into feeling guilty because we have more. What will make us powerful to heal the deep hurts and fill the deep needs and transform the surrounding society? The only true and enduring motivation for the ministry of mercy that we would engage in is an experience in the grasp of the grace of God and the gospel and the mercy that he's shown to us. If we know that we're sinners saved by grace alone, we will be both open and generous to the outcasts and to the unlovely. 
if we know through and through that there's nothing in me or nothing in you that can recommend you to God, that God would pour out favor on you and show you mercy, there's nothing in you that would allow that for happen, then how dare you look at anyone else as though they need to reach some standard before you show them the kind of mercy that Jesus has shown you. Think about Jesus and the way that he speaks. This is true of your own life. This is true of your own thought processes, but it's particularly true of mercy. Think about him saying, think about Jesus and what he would say. Christ did not say, my blood is my own. Why should I give it away? Therefore, we should not hold on to our resources though they were our own. We talked a little bit about that last week. Christ did not say, these sinners are undeserving of my blood. And neither would we withhold mercy from the needy because we don't think that they are worthy of it. Christ did not say, people might abuse my salvation. Jesus knew that many people would reject his blood and even use it as an excuse for sinning more. Yet he came... And neither should we refuse to do mercy because we're afraid someone will misuse the mercy that we show or the resources that we give. The motive for showing mercy is compassion, particularly seeing the compassion you've been shown through the grace of God and Jesus. Look, from the book that our incoming deacons used to train themselves in how to show mercy, as they use to train us and and how to be merciful and show the kind of mercy that God wants, there's this quote. Mercy is spontaneous, superabounding love, which comes from an experience of the grace of God. The deeper the experience of the free grace of God, the more generous we must become. This is why Robert Murray McShane could say, there are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. The motive for showing mercy is compassion. And that can only be had through you having a new heart that's given to you by God's effort. And his work, and his mercy on your behalf. Friends, I don't want you to pass over this fundamental aspect of your faith in the gospel. Don't pass it over. Jesus was shown no mercy so that you would be free to show mercy abundantly and liberally and generously at cost to yourself without thinking twice about it and to anyone who is near and in need. Jesus was cast out of the Father's presence and wrath poured out on him so that you could be freed to give away to others just as he's given away to us. The early Christians facing the plagues knew it. You know it. Don't feel guilty through these passages. This is not about guilt and shame. The love of Jesus does away with guilt and shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the love of Jesus surely frees you so that you can live a different kind of life towards others. And one of the ways that you'll tell if you're truly changing inside through the grace of the gospel, is how willing you are to serve others at cost yourself who are near and in need. Look at it this week. Pray through it in home meeting. Pray through it in private when you go to God privately. Draw near to him as he's drawn near to you.
And your life will be transformed by his presence and his power. And you'll show mercy because you've been shown mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the amazing and enormous salvation that you've given us. You've delivered us from our own impoverished state. Though you were rich, you became poor. So that in you, we might become rich in your kingdom as members of your family, as sons and daughters seated with you, as brothers and sisters of you at your table, heirs of the throne with you, heirs of the kingdom with you. We're so grateful, and yet we live life impoverished. We live life trying to play in droplets of water when you invite us to the ocean to swim and enjoy and delight. Father, transform us by your very, your very presence so that we might show mercy like you've shown us mercy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.